0: Well, good morning, Antioch. I, uh, I would hope that anybody who's preaching this morning would be a friend of Jesus, and I am. It's a joy to be with you and to get to worship uh, God with you and to be back uh, You as a guest preacher. Um, you're never guaranteed an invitation back, um, <laughs> and that has happened many times in my life. But for some odd reason, you invited me back, and I'm overjoyed uh, to be able to, to share uh, with you this morning. And and to to really get to share on something that's of a tremendous passion to me. Something that I've spent the last kind of four years of my life uh, uh, writing and and thinking about, and and, uh, teaching and lecturing and preaching about, kind of all all over the world. Um, And so I I was a pastor in Portland, Oregon. Portland. I don't need to say Oregon. Portland. uh, uh, For the last uh, ten years, I planted a church in the heart of uh, Southeast Portland called Theophilus. And in December, we transitioned uh, out of that responsibility, and now I I get to teach full time, which is really exciting. You get to write and shape young minds around. Bible and and theology, and uh, so boy, what a joy to be here! It took me two minutes once I got into Bend to go to Wild Rose and be reminded that God loves me, um, and (laughs) he good food there, and then went to uh, Swallow Cafe this morning, and God really loves me. Um, This is just—it's—I don't know how you could be here in Bend and not believe in God. I mean, have you walked outside and seen what's here? It's just incredible, isn't it? Yeah. So what a joy to be here. Um, This morning, I want to address what what is um, a core value of yours. This is the first time uh, that I've actually heard of a church making this idea of Sabbath a core value. What a remarkable thing to make a core value. Um, It is a a principle that um, maybe you've seen or heard about, uh, but I've been invited to come and share about today. This is a topic that I uh, really believe um, the church uh, has an opportunity to change the the world with. it's interesting, before, before I preach, I actually wanna pray a very specific prayer. Um, Jesus, um, if you look at the Gospels, the, this idea of Sabbath, the, the day of rest, where, where Israel, God's people, uh, the Jews, the disciples, Jesus would rest uh, and, and do so as an act of worship to the Father. Uh, when you look at all the days of the week in the Gospels, uh, the, the, the Jews, incidentally, only had one day of the week that they, that they had a name for. You and I have names for every days of the week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. The, the Jews actually only had one named day, and it was Sabbath, Saturday. And every other day was just called Other Day. The only day that you had a name for was the Sabbath. When you look at the Gospel stories, Jesus cast out more demons on the Sabbath than any other day in the Gospel. Any other day in the Gospels. And I say that to say, um, in the last four years as I've been teaching on this topic of Sabbath and rest and caring for yourself, I have observed, and this is one of the weirdest uh, aspects of the Sabbath, is that I, I don't know if I've experienced more demonic evil forces that stand up against the Sabbath and just about anything else I've ever preached. And I, th- I think, I think, I just wanna begin by just doing a little bit of spiritual warfare. And I wanna say, uh, so I wanna pray with you, and I invite you to pray with me this morning as we, as we begin our time together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we've gathered together now, in the name of Jesus, proclaiming the name of Jesus, lifting up the name of Jesus, exalting the name of Jesus, We stand together now as a community of Jesus followers, and we stand against the forces of darkness and evil that seek to rob, steal, and destroy. And we stand now and say to any forces that want to get in the way of us experiencing the rest of God, that they would be gone. We cast out the forces of evil that want to keep us from rest. We stand against them. In the mighty name of Jesus, the name that works and the name that destroys principalities and powers. And so today, Jesus, would you protect our time? Would you guard our hearts and minds? Would we, for the next few minutes, be willing to turn our phones off? Jesus, give us peace of mind, clarity of heart, and attentiveness in our souls in the name of Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Good. Uh, Back in the 1500s, there was a a theologian, quite a pesky gentleman by the name of Martin Luther, uh, who was uh, a a teacher of of students. Uh, Martin Luther was, of course, the the one who began the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther was asked by one of his undergraduate students, and undergraduate students are pesky, I know, because I teach them, Uh, was asked by one of his students, what was God doing on the eighth day? God made in seven days, what was God doing on the eighth day? And Martin Luther reportedly said that on the eighth day, God was creating hell as a place for people who asked really silly questions. (laughs) In in, in a way, uh, this morning, I want to ask a really silly question. Uh, I wanna ask a question that may seem just so incredibly uh, silly and unnecessary. Uh, but, and, and I wanna ask a question about, is it really important that we rest? Does it matter that we honor God's ideas about rhythms of rest? It may seem like a really silly question, but I hope in the next few minutes I can convince you that this question is actually the answer to this question is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of life and death. I want to tell you a story. A a few years ago, I was invited to go to Virginia Tech University. You'll remember Virginia Tech University. It was the site of the worst campus uh, shooting in American history. Something like 38 students were murdered on a bright spring day on the campus of Virginia Tech. I was invited to go uh, to one of the churches that was heavily involved in the Virginia Tech uh, shooting, and they invited me to come out and talk about uh, rest, biblical rest, and uh, and caring for your soul. It was, it was a, an incredible experience. Uh, after one of the evening sessions, I had the chance to go to dinner with one of the elders, and the elder uh, we're sitting in his backyard and 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 uh, making s'mores in his in his in his awesome beautiful backyard that overlooked this uh, this this beautiful land, parcel of land, and we're 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 roasting our our uh, uh, roast our marshmallows. And uh, he told me a story. He was an admiral for like 30 years. He'd worked in the Navy um, as an admiral for a good part of his entire really adult life. And when he was uh, uh, about 50 years old, he, 55 years old, he had retired. And he had listened to me talk about the Sabbath on this particular day. And he said, you know, it's really interesting when you, when you look at World War II in Vietnam. He's telling me this f- fascinating anecdote between these two wars. And he says, when you compare World War II Uh, and Vietnam, these two very different wars. He said, when you look at these two wars, there's a really big difference uh, between uh, the the, the health and the well-being of the veterans after these two wars. And he explained to me, and I have three grandparents, by the way. Uh, When you look at World War II, you look at, at Vietnam. These are two very different wars, aren't they? Uh, World War II, for example, my, my grand, I have three grandparents, one step grandfather and two my blood blood grandpas uh, who fought in World War II. One of them, Rudy, was uh, a seabee uh, in the in the islands and and built little uh, strips of, of of airplane parcels so la- planes could come and land on these little tiny islands. He was called a seabee. My other grandfather, Frank, uh, was actually fascinating story, was an airplane pilot. He never actually saw any battle, but was the guy who flew prisoners uh, around uh, during the war. He was actually the guy who flew, my grandpa Frank was the guy who flew uh, Himmler, who was Adolf Hitler's right-hand guy. My grandpa flew him to the Nuremberg Trials. Not bad, huh? Pretty cool. My other grandpa, Grandpa Tex, the week before Pearl Harbor, was drafted, he's six foot eleven, incredible basketball player, was drafted to play uh, in the NBA, to play for the Chicago Bulls. And Pearl Harbor hit, and he had to make a decision. Do you fight for your country, or do you go and live your dream? And my grandpa, as so many men did in that generation, gave up his dream and fought for his nation. <clears throat> when you look at World War II, when the war was over, and the men came back, there was this, I've been told, I'm only 38, but I've been told, that when the war finished, there was this cultural elation, right? It, it, has, it was as though evil had been destroyed. Hitler had been killed. The Third Reich had been dismantled. All the concentration camps had been, had been freed. It, it was like evil had, had been destroyed. And so when the men came back, they were extraordinarily happy. Our entire culture was uh, when the men came back, in fact, very low suicide rates, very low drug abuse rates, very low spousal abuse rates, very low PTSD rates, although they didn't diagnose it the same way, but it was, it was, depression was almost nothing at the time because everyone was so excited. Our culture was so happy that all the men came back, and we have a whole generation of people named after that happiness. They're called baby boomers. <laughs> right? They just came back and just had a bunch of kids. They were super happy. The, this is a great world to be in. Let's, we've destroyed evil, let's have a bunch of kids. So when you look at World War II, it was a very different story than Vietnam. And when you look at Vietnam, uh, my step, uh, stepfather was a part of the larger Vietnam arena. When you look at Vietnam, it was a very different experience, wasn't it? That when the men came back from Vietnam, our culture was utterly depressed. I mean, my stepfather remembers walking through an airport and having people throw eggs and fruit at him because they were ashamed that he fought for the country. Um, our culture was depressed. PTSD rates among veterans from Vietnam skyrocketed. Suicide skyrocketed. Vietnam vets had very low rates of, of birth rate. Many of them didn't want to have kids. Super high PTSD. You look at these two wars, and they're two completely different wars. And you ask, like, what in the world is different? So I'm sitting in the backyard of this guy at Virginia Tech who was an admiral for 30 years, and he says, do you want to know their theory? And I said, absolutely, I want to know their theory. What a fascinating anecdote. You look at these two wars, what was different? he said, there was one difference between these two wars. Both wars were absolutely horrible. But there was one difference. And that is that when Vietnam ended and World War II ended, the men came home very differently. Because in World War II, when the war ended, right, the men got on boats and literally, they got on boats and sat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and Atlantic Ocean for like two months to get home. But when you look at Vietnam, it's a very different story. Because the men didn't get on boats to sail across the Pacific or the Atlantic. The men literally went from fighting the Viet Cong to getting on planes and being back in their living rooms within within two days. Can you imagine going from fighting in the jungles of Vietnam to being in your living room and holding your baby in two days? And my friend said, there is one difference. The men in World War II were given a chance to sit in the boat in the middle of the ocean and process what just happened to them and cry and weep and tell their story. But the men of Vietnam were given no chance. They had no chance to process. I tell that anecdote, and the truth is, I have a bit of an agenda. I actually think, at the end of the day, that that picture of a that that is actually a, metaf- that is a metaphor for our time in history. That we have, as a culture, we have no space, no space to process and cry and weep and tell our stories anymore. We are grieving, but we have no time to process it. Honestly, if there is anybody in this room that is on Twitter and Facebook and you're not depressed, raise your hand. Because it's, friends, like one person did, and I don't trust them. Um, <laughs> Honestly, have you been on, you go and you look, there's tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and you don't have any time to just process what's going on. You're going from from battle to battle to battle. We don't have time to just stop and cry anymore. Like, we don't have time to tell our story and listen to other people's stories and just weep in the middle of the ocean anymore. And friends, honestly, it's killing, it's killing us. When, um, I, I, I'm, I'm too young to know about this, but I've been told by older generations that there were these things up until the 1960s in America called blue laws. Have you heard of these? That literally everything in America it was it was on the it was a, it was a law. Everything shut down one day a week on Sundays. Right, you'd work all day, all week, and then Sunday, you everything would shut down. There were no bars open. Wild Rose was not open on Sundays. There was nothing open on Sundays. You would go to church in the morning, you'd go home, you'd eat a meal with your family, your parents would take a nap, <laughs> right? And their door was always locked and you never knew why were my parents locking their door for their nap. And you'd be home and it'd be boring and any older person in the room remembers that it was like crazy boring, but you had to stop. One day a week you would stop. And we, friends, we have none of that anymore. None of that, my friend Matthew Sleeth. We are a 24-7 world. There is no stop whatsoever. There's this incredible book uh, written by this Jewish, she's actually an agnostic Jew, wrote a book called The Sabbath World. She wrote a book on the Sabbath. She says, isn't it ironic that America, as a nation, was founded by Europeans who came to start a Sabbath society. They came here to start a society based on rest. She says, isn't it ironic that the nation that was started with the dream of a Sabbath has become the nation most hostile to it. Uh, there's a, a, a scholar at Harvard University, Juliet Scholl, who wrote a book called The Overworked American. 25 years ago to, to today, the average family has to work 1,000 more hours every week today than 25 years ago. We are exhausted. We are exhausted. I'm 38 years old, and honestly, in my 38 years of life, there has been one day, one day in my, in my life that represents anything close to a society at rest. You know what day it was? September 11th, 2001, when the planes flew into those towers in New York City, into a field in Pennsylvania, and into the Pentagon in DC, and everything stopped. Planes had to stop flying, everyone stopped working, and everyone went home and called the people they love. Now, it requires a tragedy for us to rest. Here's a weird theory I have. I'm, I've been working this one out for weird It's a dark theory, but I'm going to tell it to you. And then we're going to get to the Bible. Don't worry. Um, my theory, have you noticed that we're obsessed? We are obsessed as a culture with zombie apocalypse or apocalypse as a metaphor. Have you noticed that? Here's my theory. I actually think somewhere in our subconscious, we are craving society crumbling to the ground because we're so exhausted of what it's become to us. Young people actually crave tragedy now because it gives them a chance to say no. I had a pastor say to me that he wished he could have a heart attack so he could step away from the insanity of his life. We are exhausted. Exhausted. I've lived in Portland the last 10 years. Young people are exhausted. Suicide rates among teenagers are skyrocketing right now. Skyrocketing. And even young people in Portland, it's ex- I lo- one of the things I love about Portland is how much justice there is in Portland. Like everybody in Portland, the guy working at the gas station is about justice. Everyone is in ju- about justice in Portland. But here's the thing. I've lived in Portland for 10 years. It's really exhausting because when you live in a city that's all about justice, it's exhausting not knowing which stuff you're supposed to be mad about this week. Right? There's like this justice exhaustion. Like, am I supposed to be mad about that now, or are we over that now? I can't remember. It's exhausting. How many of you, if you're honest, this morning, at your deepest of court, your deepest level would say, I am exhausted. That's like most of the room. And honestly, the people that didn't raise their room, their their, their hands are too tired to raise their hands. (laughs) So all of you, this, this matters to all of us because we're all exhausted. And friends, here's the point. Here's where I'm going. I think, this is my theory. This is what I'm banking the last four years of my life on. Friends, I think we are exhausted because we have forgotten the one thing God asked us never to forget. We, we, we just heard one of the Ten Commandments. This, of course, is the the, the fourth commandment, the, the the commandment for Sabbath. I, I want to just really quickly revisit all the commandments because all of them are really important. But notice the first one, the first commandment, Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. This is God's way of saying, don't worship anything else, worship me. Commandment two. Don't make an idol. Don't worship anything that looks like God. The weird thing about this one is this applies to all of us, even people like myself who are theologians. Friends, I've been a theologian for 20 years. I have a PhD in this stuff, and I'm telling you right now, it is possible to worship theology over God. It is possible to worship your ideas about God over God. Do not make an idol, don't worship anything, even if it looks like God. Don't worship it, only worship God. Commandment three, don't misuse God's name. Commandment four, remember the Sabbath day. We're gonna read that whole thing in a second. Commandment five, honor your father and your mother. Commandment six, don't murder. And I've always loved that those two commandments go next to each other. It's like Moses is little like, I wonder if God gave him in a different arrangement. He's like, no, we're gonna put those together. Because honoring your parents means not killing them. That's like a good step in the right direction. So honor your parents, don't commit murder. Don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't give false testimony, don't lie, and don't covet, number 10, don't be jealous. So you go through these 10 commandments, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna read now one more time. I'm just gonna read it again, the fourth commandment. Would you, li- listen to this. This is the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that was in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and God made it holy. Now you go through this, and I just gotta point out, I, one of the powerful things about the Sabbath commitment, can I just point out, is that the Sabbath is about everyone. Everyone. It's about you. But it's not just about you. It's about your kids. It's about your family. Do you notice it's about manservants and maidservants? I don't have any manservants. I've had employees. That's what he's talking about. It's about your employees. It's about the animals. My family, we had, when we lived in Portland, we had four, we had four chickens. And I had to ask myself the question: like, what does the Sabbath have to say about my four emotionally unstable chickens? <laughs> I know this is silly, but do you have pets? I don't know why we'd think the Sabbath doesn't have something to do with them. That God cares about our pets. You know the Bible has something to say about that? And not only that, look at this. The Sabbath is for the alien in your gates. This one is mind-blowing, friends. Th- this one is mind-blowing, because if you're into justice God's way, you begin to find that the Sabbath actually has something to do with the, the foreigner in your midst. It has something to do with the immigrant in your midst. It has something to do with the refugee in your midst. It has something to do with the person that you have no family tied to. They're the outsider. It's for everybody. I have a friend who's an undocumented worker, and he said he, he said to me once, he said, being an undocumented uh, immigrant in our nation, the hardest thing, he's 25 years old, he said the hardest thing is that when you're undocumented, you can never, ever make any mistakes. Because the minute you're pulled over for anything, you're done. And he said, you want to know the truth? Being an immigrant, there's no rest for the immigrant. Because I, friends, there's nowhere I can go and just be at peace. And I look at, I look at this, and I'm not putting an political agenda on you today. I'm saying that the Sabbath has to do with everyone. It's for all of us. Now, did you notice, I just find this fascinating as a Bible nerd. Did you notice of the 10 commandments, this is the only one that begins with the word remember? Because here's the thing, none of the other nine are ones that we're probably going to forget. Nobody's. I've never met a Christian who's like, you know, that whole murder thing. That's just Old Testament <laughs> law. It's like, like eating bacon. I mean, it's just kind of passed away. And you know, the whole the whole adultery thing. That yeah, once circumcision was gone, that one was gone, and we're good. We can just do what we want to do now. Nobody does that, right? You go through all 10 of these commands and like nine of them were like, yeah, yeah, murder, bad, jealousy, bad, coveting, bad, adultery, stealing, bad, bad. And then we come to the Sabbath one and we're like, what do we do with that? Nine of these were like, oh yeah, that's Bible. We're, we're bound by that. And then we come to the Sabbath one and we're like, oh, we can forget that one. I actually wanna illustrate this with the most terrifying experience I ever had as a pastor. Most terrifying experience I've ever had. When we planted the church in Portland 10 years ago, uh, church planting is hard work. It is, if you're a mess, it just makes you messier. If you're an emotional wreck, it just makes, if you're, gosh, if you're an unhealthy human being, it makes you more unhealthy. And it did that to me. Church planting is just hard work. There is no such thing as emotionally healthy church planning. It's horrible. God uses it, but it's horrible. When we started the church, I noticed about five years ago the church was exhausted. Rightfully so. Starting a church is hard. And they were tired. And so I decided to do what pastors do when there's a problem in the church. I did a sermon series. (laughs) That's what we do. Uh, We deal with problems by series. That's our thing. So I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach for three weeks on the Sabbath. Three weeks on the Sabbath. And I'm going to just talk, I'm going to talk about this and we're going to, I'm just going to free people. We're going to, we're going to talk about like rest. It's good. So I, I said, I'm going to do three weeks on the sermon on, on the, on the Sabbath. I'm going to preach for three weeks. So I preached for three weeks and I, I will warn you, I have preached and by living in Portland, you just, this is by nature, the, the, the nature of doing ministry in Portland. I, I've preached on a lot of topics that have made people absolutely hate me. Okay. You can find blogs, plenty of them. Just Google me. They're there. I preached I preach on sexuality. I'm super conservative on sexuality. And I preached on, it. man, it didn't help. People were ticked at me. Uh, I preached a whole thing on polyamory once. Like God calls you to be married to one person, not 50, like Abraham. He's not calling you to do that. He's calling you to do a different way. Um, I've, I preached on marijuana once. That, man, that one. Blue people were mad. Cause so I live in Portland. you got to talk about this sort of stuff. So I preached a whole sermon against marijuana. Some of you right now are mad at me. (laughs) And you will email Pete. So I have preached on things that have made people mad. My point in saying that is to say I have preached on stuff that has got me in trouble. And I preached for three weeks on the biblical idea of rest. And I don't think we ever had more people leave the church. And what I found (laughs) was that when you talk about rest... It steps and violates every single thing that we value as Americans. Productivity, affluence, power, influence, progress. Everything that we value is offended by the Sabbath because you take a day and you stop. There were actually two groups of people that were super mad at me. You know they were? Business owners and moms, It's the only time in human history those two groups of people have protested together. (laughs) Like, "Ah, we hate you. Because, friends, when when you're a business owner, you understand that this actually has ramifications for the way that you run your business. And if you're a mom, how in the world do you care for this child that God has called you to do? How in the world can you ever rest? And so I preached, and people, I was amazed. So the elders wanted to meet. That's what happens. You preach a series and the elders want to meet. And I was sitting around. This was, the, this, was the darkest, this was the darkest moment. I was sitting in an elders meeting. These are the people charged with the spiritual well-being of the church, the financial fiduciary responsibility, caring for the church. We have a council to she as a financier, but the elders were sitting around. And it dawned on me. We were talking about the Ten Commandments. They were asking me about the Sabbath, and I, it dawned on me. You take these Ten Commandments. <laughs> you take these Ten Commandments. As a pastor, if I was to break nine of these, right? If I committed adultery, I'd probably lose my job. If I stole from the church, I'd probably lose my job. Uh, If I committed murder, I would definitely lose my job. And it dawned on me that you take these nine, if I break nine of them, I'd lose my job. But if I don't take a day of rest, I'll probably get a raise. And it was the first time in my life that I realized that this has become the one commandment that we celebrate people breaking. And friends, it's killing us. I don't know if God, I don't know if God could be clearer. The first word is remember the Sabbath day. It's like God knew what he was doing. It's like God knew that of the 10, we don't believe, that's the thing, friends, and I'm not, listen, I'm a guest preacher, this may be the last time I'm invited in. (laughs) We don't actually believe in the 10 commandments. We believe in nine commandments and one really strong suggestion. And at what point it was that we thought, we thought God didn't know what he was talking about and that we knew better is beyond me. Friends, this is killing teenagers It's killing our souls. Creation is dying because we have forgotten the rest of God. By the way, the problem is, more often than not, and I confess this as a a Christian myself, we are often better at obeying our cliches about God than we are about actually following the Bible. I mean, I I don't know how many times I've heard a well-intentioned preacher say or a Christian, well intentioned Christian, just say, you know, I don't I, I don't need to take a day of rest because the devil never rests. To which I would say, like that is exactly why he's the devil. <laughs> you know? Like nobody ever ever says that people worked like the Lord. People never say people work like the Messiah they always say people work like the devil because the devil's a workaholic. And at what point we were like, hey, let's find out what the devil's doing and do that today and made that our discipleship model. It's weird. Or we say like, we say like, I I don't need to rest now because I'll just rest when I get to heaven. To which I would say, no, you're just going to get there faster. You're in the fast pass lane, bro. (laughs) Truth of the matter is the Bible From page one, the Bible is full of rest. This is the irony, by the way, of God in the Bible is that God rests, but the devil doesn't know how to rest. In fact, busyness, it's an interesting thing. When you look at the word busy in the Bible, the word busy, never once is God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit ever described as being busy. And it's naturally clear because when you're the Lord of time and created it, you can't be late for stuff. No wonder that God is never busy. But there is one spiritual entity in the Bible who is busy. You know who it is? And it is only one, per, one being in the Bible who's described as busy when it comes to spiritual entity. And friends, it is the devil. In Job chapter 1, when Satan comes before God and God says, where have you been? Satan says, I have been running to and fro throughout the earth. Busyness is not a divine quality. It's a demonic quality. But we value it. We love being busy. We love it because it makes us feel so important. In fact, that's crazy good theology. Do you remember that one time when Jesus cast the demon out of the woman and he says about the demon that the demon goes through arid places looking for a place to rest? Friends, the demons in the Bible don't know how to rest, but God does. Catch that for irony. This idea of rest, it's everywhere in the Bible. For example, you go to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis one and two, it is smack dab in the middle of the creation story. In fact, it's interesting. When you take the creation story in the Bible and you compare it to all the other creation stories in the ancient world, because the Jews were not the only people who had a creation story. All the other religions had one too. The Akkadians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, all of them had some creation story. And what's interesting, you have to wrestle with this in class, is how similar the stories actually are, the Bible and all these other religions. And I know that there's plenty of professors out there who would say that that's clearly a sign that the Jews just copied from all the other religions. When I would say the fact that all these religions that hated each other actually agreed on something is a sign that something had to happen. But you take these other religions and you compare it to the Bible, what's fascinating are not the similarities, what's fascinating are the differences. There's three differences in the creation story from all the other religions in the creation story. Number one, the creation story in the Bible is the only one in which everything God makes is good. Did you notice that? God can't make anything without getting done with it and patting himself on the back and going, that's awesome. See, that's good, that's good, that's good. God, because God doesn't make bad stuff. Do we corrupt it? That's what C.S. Lewis said. He said, evil is just corrupted goodness. God doesn't make evil, God makes good and good turns in on itself. Luther said, in service de est de ust. It turns in on itself. It becomes narcissistic good. But God only makes good. Friends, have you ever had a mango? (laughs) Like a real mango, like one of those mangoes that you buy at New Seasons or whatever place you have here. And, and you put it and you just, you chew it and the juice just like flows down your face. Have you ever had that mango? Have you ever finished that mango, ever once, finished that mango and said, yeah, there's no God? <laughs> Nobody in human history has ever eaten a mango and afterwards been a stronger atheist. You eat a mango, friends, and you know that God is good because, friends, not only did God make mangoes, but in the words of C.S. Lewis, he also gave you taste buds. And God could have not given you taste buds. It would have been super mean, but he could have not given you taste buds. Made mangoes, but no taste buds. But God loves you so much that God didn't have to make food as good as it is, but he did. God only makes good stuff. And so when you eat a mango, I want you to remember Romans 1, which says the invisible qualities of God have been put in the creation of the world. That every mango is a love letter from your creator. That's In the Bible, the only religion that says everything that's good that God made is in the Bible. Number two, the creation story in the Bible is the only one. (laughs) It's the only one in which women are made in the image of God. No other religion had that. Every other religion saw women as a mistake, as an error, as a footnote. But the Bible says they were made exactly the way God wanted them and they are made in the image of their maker, Only the Bible does that. So much so, by the way, women are so important in the story of the Bible that when God actually comes to the world, it's through a woman, Mary. And then when Jesus dies on the cross on Easter, it is all the male disciples who are in a room together terrified, huddled together worried they're gonna die. And it's the women who go to the tomb and see that it's empty and run back and preach the first Easter sermon. can women preach? We wouldn't know about Easter. The guys would still be in the room. <laughs> terrified. Unless the women go and see the first Easter sermon was preached by the ladies. Friends, it's, there's no, anybody, honestly, anybody that looks at this book and says it's anti-women and patriarchal, friends, yet you've never read it. Because from page one on, this book says women are awesome. Can I get an amen? Amen. Number three, the creation story in the Bible. Friends, stay with me because this is so good. The creation story in the Bible is the only one in which God, it is the only one, no other religion did this, is the only one in which God gave people a day off. No other religion did that. I mean, we literally should be dancing in the aisles right now. We, we, we worship the God who invented the weekend. Not bad. It's built into creation. It's, it's not only in creation, it's in the law. Like when Moses leads Israel out of, the, out of the Egypt into the promised land, You remember that story of Moses goes up on the mountain and he gets the law and he brings them down. It's in the Ten Commandments. One of the first things God does is says, you are no longer in Egypt. Now rest. You don't need to be slaves. Have a day of rest every week. The irony is Moses goes up on the mountain, comes back down with the Ten Commandments and finds everybody worshiping the golden calf down below. That, by the way, literally is why most pastors don't take sabbaticals. is that we are terrified of what's going to happen if we leave. Because we think if we leave and we come back, you're all going to be idolaters, worshiping another God. That's one fear. I'm going to tell you what our real fear is. You want to know what our real fear is? Is that if we go up the mountain and come back down, our real fear is you're all still going to be worshiping God and we're going to realize we're not as important as we thought we were. They both terrify us. But the truth of the matter is, friends, Moses brings down the law. And what is in the law at the very beginning is God's commandment to rest, to rest. Don't forget this. It's in the law. Friends, it's in Jesus. Jesus was God. He was God. He wasn't partly God, sometimes God, God before noon. He was always God. He was God in human flesh. Our young life people would say, he is God in the body. Jesus Christ was God. What an amazing feature of the life of God coming to the world that when Jesus Christ came to the world, Jesus Christ took a day a week to rest. He was God. Jesus is always getting away and retreating. His disciples can never find him. He's always off in the woods with the Father. Do you notice how Jesus is always sleeping in the Gospels? So much so... It's weird how he sleeps, because he's always awake when the disciples are asleep, and he's always asleep when the disciples are awake. In the boat, when the disciples are scared of the storm, Jesus is snoring in the back. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the disciples are all, awake, all asleep, and he's fast awake praying. Jesus, my spiritual director says this. He says, it's never a sign of spiritual Christian maturity to be well-adjusted to a sick society. And Jesus was not well-adjusted to the world. He was well-adjusted to his Father in heaven, And it turns out that when God comes to the world, even God rests. And I guess my question today, are you better than Jesus? And if your answer is yes, we we have another conversation to have. But if your answer is no, friends, here at Antioch, we follow Jesus Christ. And to follow Jesus means to do what Jesus did. And here's the deal. It turns out Jesus rests. The beautiful thing about Jesus resting. Do you remember when God created the world, he rested on day seven? Look at what Jesus does when he comes to recreate the world by the gospel. In the beginning, God rested on the seventh day. When Jesus comes, he rests on the seventh day in a tomb. It's like every time God wants to get something done, he takes a day off. Because God's rest is more effective than man's work. It always is. It's in Jesus. And if you don't, friends, if you don't like it in creation, the law, and Jesus, I've got the worst news in the world because the Bible in Hebrews describes heaven as Sabbath. And the bad news is, if you don't like the Sabbath, I've got bad news. You're going to be doing it for like ever. (laughs) Abram Heschel says this. One of the greatest Jewish mystics says that to practice a Sabbath today is to practice, to utter eternity for a day. His point? To take a day of rest every week now is to practice what heaven will be like are you hungry for this do you desire this I want to tell you what our family does, and this is going to be the the kind of way I I conclude um, my talk, and then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper, but I want to tell you how my family Sabbath is, because at the end of the day, I think how we do it is really, really important. The first thing you got to ask, if we're going to do this, okay, what if I was to rest? If this is a core value for this church, what would it look like a day a week for me to stop, to be with God? What would it look like to do this? Now, the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out what day it's going to be. I'm going to tell you what. If, if we're going to say it has to be Sunday, as a pastor, I'm toast. Because there has never been a day in human history that a pastor has left church on Sunday and gone home and said, ah, that was a refreshing experience. Because it's hard work. This is hard work. I'm going to go nap for four weeks after I'm done preaching to you. This is hard work. I poured my heart and soul into what I'm saying to you today. This is hard work. Does it have to be Sunday? It doesn't have to be Sunday. Does it have to be Saturday? It doesn't have to be Saturday. Does it have to be Tuesday? It doesn't have to be Tuesday. How do I know? Because the Bible tells us so. Paul answers the question for us. He says, "Some people consider one day to be holy, and some people consider another day to holy. Be holy. But what you're going to do is, whatever you do, do it unto the Lord." And his point is this: Don't get all weird and legalistic and say it has to be a certain day. I love my seventh-day Adventist friends, but I disagree with them on this point because they say it has to be Saturday, and I, I completely, categorically disagree. The day does not matter. We, our call is not to bicker about the day. Our call is to find a day that we can do and to enter into it. So you gotta find a day. And here's what you're gonna, this is, this is how our family Sabbaths. I I'm wanna I'm tell you what we do and then you're gonna go and do this and it's gonna change your life. Okay? Here's what you're gonna do. The first thing I do, and we Sabbath on Tuesdays. This is what we do. On Tuesdays I come home and the very first thing I do, I come home, my, my wife and my son are there, I come home and the first thing I do is I take this, this thing. How many of you have one of these? You're all liars. You've all got one. It's an iPhone or an I, I something. Do any of you have one of these? Yeah, okay, all of you. You're all neurotic messes. Lord, have mercy on your souls. First thing I do, I come home. I take this thing. It's the very first thing I do. I come into my house. And so there's this, teach a trick. So there's this, this button Some of you have seen this and you've gone, what is that for? So it turns out that when you press it for like five seconds, it like shuts down. I just blew your mind. Some of you didn't know this. So I shut the computer down. But don't worry. It's interesting. The people who designed this thing have made it so that when you turn it off, as a little subtle reminder, it flashes an apple with a bite taken out of it. like you're back in the Garden of Eden or something, and that you have been eating from the tree of knowledge of good and evil all week long. And friends, the truth of the matter is, we can laugh all we want about it. We have replaced the voice of the Holy Spirit with this. We spend our lives, this is, this is my impersonation of what young people look like now. This is, we just walk around, this is all we do. That's it, that's my impersonation. Like we could literally be walking by the burning bush and God is yelling at us. And we're like... And it used to to be just the young people. Now it's the old people too. They're just a lot slower. They're like... That's all we do. We just walk around and we're glued to this thing. And we are asking ourselves, why is God's voice so quiet? Friends, the problem is not the voice of God. The problem is we're stinking distracted. We have no time for God anymore. We have no time to just stop and wait on the slow work of the kingdom. We spend our life going to and fro and we're proud of it. I come home and I turn my phone off, and it's the hardest thing in the world because I'm terrified about what's gonna happen when I leave the phone. That evening we light these Sabbath candles, it's super nerdy. We light these candles, it's beautiful. we all light them, and, and then we go to bed in the morning. This is the most important part, I'm almost done, please stay with me. In the morning of the Sabbath, Tuesday morning, my son, it's the same thing every week, so my son comes into the, into the room. The wife gets to sleep in on the Sabbath. And my son, we have this this liturgy, this thing that we do every week, and you're going to do this. It's going to change your life. My son comes into the room. And I'm still sleeping, but he gets right into my face. And he gets right into my face, and he goes, Papa! Papa! It's the (laughs) Sabbath! His his, his breath is demonic, right? He has... has (laughs) mercy but he's just and the, the Sabbath has a lot of awe. Ah, it's like says, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm like okay I'm up so my son and I we do this every week my son and I we know exactly what we're going to do it's the same thing every week it is our religion we both go into the kitchen together and start the coffee we get the bacon out of the fridge we put it on a baking sheet you bake bacon it's in the name it's like a, hint. It's a little hint from the Lord. And any of you, any of you, think that I'm a Pharisee or a legalist? Let me just point out: I eat way too much bacon for any of you to make some case that I'm bringing back some weird Pharisaical legalism. I'm not. We put the bacon in, and my son and I make the biggest pancakes. And we sit at the griddle, and the wife smells it. She kind of gets up, like in those old cartoons. She's like floating down the hallway, smelling the smell. She's like, she comes in, and we're making these, these pancakes, man. And my son, every week, he just, man, we sit at the table, and he covers that stuff with the most bacon and maple syrup you've ever seen. He just pours it on there. And the reason we do the pancakes, it's really actually simple. There's there's an old uh, Jewish tradition that says on the morning of the Sabbath, the father's job was to get up before the whole family and get every child a spoon of honey so that the children would never forget the sweetness of God's rest. We don't do honey, we do maple syrup. And we sit at that table, and we pig out. The the breakfast gets done, nobody does the dishes. That's the rule. My son on the Sabbath, we go on a walk, we go to the park, we play, we garden a little bit, then we come in, my son always gets to watch a movie on the Sabbath. And when he watches the movie, his parents get to take a nap. It's the best nap of the week. <laughs> because Sabbath isn't just for kids. It's for marriages, too. And it's for single people, too. And it's for refugees, too. It's for divorced people, too. It's for everybody. And we rest. And we, we have a nap. And we, we come back and we eat another meal. And we spend the day. And friends, there are days that the Sabbath is imperfect. We've never had a perfect Sabbath. But I will tell you this. I will tell you this. I've been keeping the Sabbath for 12 years. And I will say it is the closest thing to the garden of of Eden I've ever tasted. And God, Jesus said he was the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm going to translate that. He's the Lord of the pancakes. And he has set the table. And the souls in this room that are hungry and tired and you're about to give up, I came here today to tell you that God loves you. And the pancakes are warm. Do you need that? I need it too. Friends, in the name of Jesus, would the forces of evil, the forces of Pharaoh that have kept you trapped ensnared, and oppressed be cast away as you learn to follow the Lord of the Sabbath. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, You are good, not because you give us what we want. You're good because you're good. But because you're good, you give us things like good food and rest, and we can't help but praise you for it. Jesus, you're the Lord of the Sabbath. You have been eternally prepping pancakes for us. In heaven, there will be pancakes every morning. The supper of the, the Lamb of God will have pancakes. God, we look forward to the day of rest But to prepare, God, we practice it here and now. I pray for freedom for young people, old people, middle-aged people. I pray for freedom in this room, freedom in this room, that Pharaoh would be cast out. Jesus, you would reign. Bring your rest, God. Bring your rest. Thank you, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen.